Wonderful. You ready for the Word of God this morning? Yeah, we're going to go to the final session on the book of Acts where we're looking at how God is on the move and we see a missionary God at work in the book of Acts. And today I want to bring you to Acts chapter 17. We go to Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read for you from verses 16 all the way to 28. Uh, no, all the way to 31. Okay, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 onwards. For those of you who are watching online, we welcome you as well to our online campus. We're glad to see that um, we now have uh, got a good number of cell groups. They are online now, so we invite you to join us as well. Acts chapter 17, reading from verse 16 onwards. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him, brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, and then they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they are basically just philosophical in their orientation. Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Then listen to what he said to them. The God who made the, the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of them. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. Of course, referring to Jesus Christ. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. Father, I thank You for Your precious Word. And I pray that this morning, as we sit under the sound of your word, may your word go through us as we go through your word. And may you instruct us, teach us what it means to, to reach out to people around us with understanding and discernment. And Lord, may all of us become channels, bridges that you can use to bridge people far away from God to a God who is not far away, who is near to them. So God, may you use this time 
to speak. In Jesus' name, we pray. Everybody say, Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul, I think, will go down in history as one of the greatest communicators of the gospel. He was a pioneer, you know, in cross-cultural evangelism and missions. He took the gospel, which is of Jewish roots, and he effectively communicated it to a Gentile world. And in Acts chapter 17, we find that Paul was, was being, going from city to city, and he finally ended up in Athens. Where was Athens? It was the intellectual pinnacle of Greek civilization. What Mecca is to the Muslims, what Jerusalem is to the Jews, what the Ganges River is to the Hindus, Athens was to the intellectual elite of that time. It was like the capital city of people who are smart and people who, are, who, 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 who loves the intellect. Athens was a place filled with intellectuals and philosophers where human wisdom was sought after and worshipped. Athens was the eye of Greece. It was the this, this art centre of the ancient world. It was a very, very famous city. Luminaries like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, they all came from Athens. But this was also the place, therefore, where evangelism would be at its hardest. Why? Because the Bible tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to the wisdom of this world. Isn't that right? There's going to be that collision between the in, in, intellects of the, the world and the gospel, the simple message of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to 25, Paul after he visited Athens, wrote these words in, in 1 Corinthians 1, because the next city that he went to, if you read on, was Corinth. And listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power, and the, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, to the world, it's foolishness, but to those of us who are being saved, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And under this very adverse circumstances, the Apostle Paul demonstrated for us three very crucial principles that we all must learn if we want to reach out to people who are far away from the Lord. Here are the three key principles we learn about evangelism from Acts 17. Number one is this. We must feel the pressure of the lostness of man within our own soul. If we want to effectively reach out to people far away from God, the first thing we must remember, we must first feel the pressure of the lostness of man within our own soul. If you look at verse 16, when Paul was in Athens, he was greatly distressed, the Bible said, greatly distressed. In other words, he was really disturbed. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The Apostle Paul, standing in the city of Athens, felt the pressure of the lostness of man upon his own soul. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, that idols have infested the city and binding the people. And he felt it within his own soul. 
This has got to be the inner posture of any evangelist. See, you and I can never effectively communicate the gospel to the lost until and unless we actually feel the pressure of the lostness of man upon our own soul. That every time you look at people far away from God, do we at all feel anything? If we don't feel anything, we are not likely to want to even reach out. Is that true? You must first feel the pressure of the lostness of man upon our own soul. Dr. J.H. Jowett, who wrote a book called A Passion for Souls, wrote this. He said, the gospel of a broken heart demands the ministry of bleeding hearts. When our sympathy loses its pangs, then we are no longer be the servants of the passion. We can never heal the needs we do not feel. Is that true? We can never heal the needs we don't feel. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23, verse 27. Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, just looking at, 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 the, at the people of God and seeing how lost they are. And he cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together as a hand gathers her cheeks under her wings, but you were not willing. He felt it. He saw their lostness. He felt the pressure the, of the lostness of man upon his soul. And he cried out, How I long to gather you. But where's the problem? The problem was you were not willing. Can you feel the pathos that Jesus had for the lost souls of men? And when you think about our unsaved loved ones and colleagues and friends and neighbours, do we feel their lostness? That's the question. Do we feel this lostness that they have? Sometimes you look at them, they seem all to be doing really well. They seem happy. They, they, they seem to be in the pink of hell. Big bang accounts, you know, flying here, flying there, enjoying themselves. And we think that, wow, I wish I can be like them. But they don't know the Lord. And they're destined for a Christless eternity. Do we feel this lostness within our hearts? Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. I saw, I saw this beautiful verse. When Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and then he stretched out his hands and he healed their sick. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus saw the crowd. He felt the needs of the people upon his own soul and then he responded, he acted. And you notice the flow of compassion. It's always like that. From the eyes to the heart to the hands. From the eyes to the heart to the hands. The eyes see, the heart feel, and then the hands begin to act. It's always this flow. What I see, I feel, then I can do something about it. See, my wife yesterday, I think her cell group went to help in the homeless ministry. And she came back, she can't stop talking about reaching out to these homeless uh, people in our city. Why? Because her eyes have seen, her heart has felt it. And now she said, we've got to do something about it. Are you with me? Yes. The eyes, the heart, the hands. Do you feel the lostness of man upon your own soul? Arthur brought us into this place where we could pray and seek the Lord for the people that are trapped in sin. Why? Because he felt it. Because he's been through it this week, right? The heart feels, the eyes see, the heart feels, then the hand will begin to act. 
You think about the prophet Hosea. Anyone ever studied the book of Hosea? You know what the story is about? The prophet Hosea, one day the Lord turned up to him and called out to him, Hosea, Hosea. And then Hosea said, yes, Lord. Then the Lord said, I want you to go and marry the prostitute. Said, huh? You sure? Say, yeah, I want you to go and marry the prostitute. Then what? Then I want you will have three kids with her. And then what? Then she's going to leave you, go back into the street and prostitute herself again. Then what? Then I want you to go, redeem her back from her pimp and love her all over again. Then what? Then you go and tell my people Israel. That's exactly how I feel about them. Are you getting this? Because that's exactly what the people of God did to the Lord. He took this prostituting people and he saved us. And then what do we do? We, we go out and bear and we flirt with the world again. We prostitute ourselves. And then what did the Lord do? He came down, died on the cross, redeemed us back to himself. And I tell you, when Hosea got that message, and he saw it in his own life. He felt it within his own bones. And by the time he stood up before the people of, of Israel and he spoke to them, I guarantee you, he felt the message within his own bones. It wasn't just a concept anymore. It was something he felt. He felt the pressure of the lostness of man upon his own soul. And until, my brothers and sisters, we catch a glimpse of the value of the human soul, we cannot effectively communicate this gospel of Jesus Christ. How does our Lord Jesus value the human soul? You know, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus told two, three parables, and every one of them give us an insight into the value that he holds towards human souls. Remember, Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to 7, he tells us about the lost sheep. And then in verse 8 to 10, he talked about the lost coin. And then finally, verse 11 to 31, he talked about the lost son. And in each one of these parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the focus was never on those who remain in safety. The focus of every one of these parables were, were on the one who was lost. See, and this is true throughout the, the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus. And in each instance in that parable, Something of great worth is lost, right? The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. And then the, great, then the, the, the owner must go through great inconvenience and great pain to get it back. And I think that is the fitting picture of the value of the human soul in the eyes of God. And the highlight of each of these parables is found in the closing verse where everyone then speaks of the value of the human soul. Luke 15, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That's the climax. Luke 15, verse 10, in the same way, I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. Luke 15, verse 32, but we had to celebrate and be glad. Why? Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now is found. That's the value of the human soul that Jesus holds. Do you and I feel the same? I think that's the first challenge we all have to, have to receive, that we must first feel 
the pressure of the lostness of man upon our own soul in order to reach out. And then, here's number two. If you feel the pressure of the lostness of man upon your own soul when you look at your loved ones, your unsafe colleagues and friends, then the second thing we need to do is we must be willing to place ourselves between the gap between where they are in their lostness and a God who loves them. We put ourselves in between and we stand in the gap for them. You look at verse 22 and 23 now of Acts 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said this, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. You notice that the Apostle Paul was very deeply observant about what is going on in Athens. And he noted that the Athenians were desperately religious. It's like what E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary, once said, the Western world is asking the question, is there a God? But the Eastern world is asking which God to believe in. The Western world wants to know if there's a God, but the Eastern world is saying, which God do I believe in? Because in India alone, there are 330 million gods, according to their scriptures. 330 million, my God, you get confused. You know? And within our own context, when we look at all the people around us, we can also see very deeply religious people, isn't it? People who are looking for inner meaning. People who are looking for purpose in life. But you notice that Paul did not put them down for being religious, but he actually made use of the fact that they are religious to put himself between the gap. You look at verse 23, right? Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. So Paul actually commended the Athenians uh, for their search. He did not humiliate, he did not ridicule them for their ignorance. In fact, he was very sensitive to the context in which he was speaking the gospel message. And this tells us something. Listen, brothers and sisters, evangelism is not just memorizing a script, whether it's John 3.16 or four spiritual laws, and then using it to whack the, the pre-believers over their heads. But evangelism is really a relational process. It is being sensitive to the open doors, to the kairos moments of destiny where bridges can be built between where, where they are and where God is, right? Where open doors can, where doors can be opened to their hearts. So what's my point? My point is this. We must begin with where the people are. Are you with me? Yes. Hello? You're very quiet this morning. Are you, are you hearing me? Yeah, what, what is evangelism? The starting point is this. We must begin where the people are. For example, Acts 17, actually if you read Acts 17, before Paul came to Athens, he was in two other cities, Thessalonica and Berea. He was in two other cities. And then you read what happened in Thessalonica, Thessalonica and Berea. It's completely different from Athens. For example, in these cities, when Paul went to Thessalonica, he was dealing with Jews who believed in the Scriptures, who had this worldview that the Scriptures can be trusted. And because that's where the people are, what did Paul do? Paul actually used the Scriptures to talk to them. So you find in Acts 17, verse 2, 
Paul went into the, the synagogue in Thessalonica, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and then rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So what's he doing? Because the people have this worldview that scriptures can be trusted, so he used the scriptures to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. Then he went to Berea. In Berea, you notice, Paul did exactly the same thing. Why? Because he was again dealing with the Jews who believe in the scriptures. Now, the only difference between Thessalonica and Berea is this. In Thessalonica, they only listen to what the preacher says, what Paul says, and then they either accept it, they either receive it, or they rejected it. And this reminds me, there are many, many Christians like that who come to church on Sunday, and we listen to the messages preached from the pulpit, and then we just decide at the end, good message or not so good message. And that's all we do. We just, either we say thumbs up or we say thumbs down. And that's all we do on a Sunday. We come, hear a message, and decide whether the preacher did well or didn't do well. But the Berians were different. They took the message, they listened to it eagerly from the Apostle Paul, and then what? They then searched the Scriptures. They examined the Scriptures to see for themselves if what Paul said was true. Look at Acts 17, verse 11. Listen now. It says, The Berean Jews were of no more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and then they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And they remind me of believers who come to church Sunday after Sunday. They hear the Word of God eagerly on Sunday. And then that's not the end. They took the time after that to study the Word of God for themselves from Monday to Saturday to find out whether what the preacher said is true or not. Are you with me? I think that's really important. I think that's really, really critical that we don't just want to have people come on a Sunday, consume the message, decide whether thumbs up or thumbs down. But the point is, you hear what the preacher expounded, you check for yourself. Did I say the, the truth or not? If I didn't, come and talk to me. But if I did, you better obey it. Hello? If not, why do we even come? And church, I want to challenge you today. Don't let the Bible become something we consume on a Sunday through a preacher. And then we give it thumbs up or thumbs down. We like or don't like. But we want to be like the Berians. They hear the word of God eagerly on a Sunday through our preachers and teachers. And then from Monday to Saturday, we study, we examine the word of God diligently so that we can encounter the God of the word for ourselves. Are you with me? It's not just hearing the word of God on a Sunday. It's encountering the God of the word from Monday to Friday. It is not a book of messages. The Bible you hold in your hand is not a book of messages. It is a book of encounters. We're supposed to encounter God through the reading of the Word. We don't just want to master the Bible. You better let the Bible master you. This book is not just for Sunday consumption. It is for Monday to Sunday. This is the bread of life. 
This is the word of the living God. So I challenge you, read the word, study the word, obey the word, and then pass it on. I think this is what we do with the word. Does it make a difference? Was there a difference between the what happened in Thessalonia and what happened in Berea? I think so. Because you read it carefully. In Thessalonica, some people were saved. Acts 17.4. Some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas and did a large, so did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So some Jews, which is their targeted audience, right? Some Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. But in Berea, many people believe. Read Acts 17, 12. As a result, many of them believe as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Are you with me? When we actually study the Word of God for ourselves and we encounter the God of the Word, all of a sudden, it's a conviction now. You are driven by what you, what you understand from the Word and what you know God is saying to you. It's no longer what Pastor Benny Selah, what Arthur Selah, who... I almost want to say who cares me. I care, okay, you. <laughs> yeah, you do need to care. But the point is this. It's the word of God that transforms us, not what the preacher said. We need to study the word for ourselves. Don't let the Bible become something we consume on a Sunday only. Let it be something that we apply every single day of our life. Somebody say amen to that. You got nothing else from what I said this morning? Take that home and put it into practice. And you see how much a difference it can make. See, and here, you, you notice this, right? Paul started where the people are, with the Bereans, with the Thessalonians. He started with the scriptures because they have that worldview. But when you get to Athens, it was a different city. This was a city that is deeply religious, highly intellectual at the same time. And how do, how do we know? This was represented by two things. The Acropolis, where you see a collection of Greek gods. You, you go to Athens today, you'll see them. There's an Acropolis. That's where you see a collection of gods. But at the same time, there is the Aeropagus, which is Mars Hill, or what we know as Mars Hill, where philosophers gather to discuss new ideas. So these are the two big things that is going on in Athens, right? There's, they are very religious, but at the same time, very intellectual. Paul, when he was there, he saw the depravity of the city. He felt the lostness of the Athenians. But he also saw this altar to an unknown God. And when he saw that altar, he said, bam, that's the gap that I need to stand in. He saw the opening to an unknown God. And in Acts 17, verse 22 to 23, listen to this now. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around, look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. But this is his opportunity at the same time. He says, now this is what I am going to proclaim to you. He felt the lostness of man. He saw the gap and he stood in it. 
Okay, and he began to talk to them. Now, what was most interesting was to see how God, how Paul masterfully addressed the people of Athens and he met them where they were. Who was he speaking to primarily? Basically, verse 18 tells us it was a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers who began to debate with him. Now, who are these people? The Epicureans are those who believe that the pursuit of personal pleasure is the ultimate thing in life. That is their philosophy of life. That my best thing I can do in life is eat, drink, and be merry. That's their philosophy. That's why you notice there's a restaurant that we all like to go in Crown. What is it called? Epicurean, yeah, exactly. That's what they are. They, they are into fine dining and into all these things, you know, that make life great, you know. So that's what they were after. Eat, drink, be merry. Just don't overdo it and hurt others in the process. That's the Epicurean thinking. The Stoics, on the other hand, were people who placed intellect above emotion. So we say that, oh, this person is very Stoic. That means he doesn't display any emotions. As far as the Stoic is concerned, his belief is this, I am the captain of my own soul. I'm the master of my own fate. I take control of my life. I don't let all these circumstances wear me down. I take charge. And that's the stoic at work. Okay? And, they, and they, they believe that they are in control of everything in their life. That's the stoic's thinking. But both of them, whether Epicureans or stoic, they also believe in many gods. That it's just that God is not involved in their life. They do their own thing. That's it. So what did Paul do? Paul not knew that these were the people he's dealing with, so he spoke to them. Listen to what he said now in verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, give, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Here he's targeting the Stoics who think that they are in control of everything. He said, no, 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 no. Only God alone is self-sufficient. We are not the masters of our own fate. We are not the captains of our own soul. Only God is sovereign. Then he went on to say this in verse 26 to 28. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him, find him, though he's not far from them. For in him, we live and move and have our being. And he was quoting their own poets at this point. And he, now what is he doing? He is addressing the Epicureans. And he's telling them that life is not by chance. It's not just eat, drink, and be merry. No, no, no. Life is not by chance. God is the one who predetermines where we are born, where we live, etc. And it is in this God that we will live and move and have our being. Are you with me? It's not just whatever. It is God who is in control. This unknown God is Jesus Christ, he's telling them. In the past, you didn't know, but now I am proclaiming to you. Hallelujah. The Apostle Paul communicated the gospel within the cultural and religious context of Athens. And throughout this whole presentation, I'd like you to notice, you read what he said, he did not quote scriptures at all. But how many of you know, he was giving them biblical truths. 
He may not quote a text, but he was presenting to them the biblical narrative. He even quoted their own poets you know, in, cre- in, in presenting that narrative. He even quoted their own poets in verse 28, as some of your poets have said. So what's he doing? He's taking advantage of everything that's there, put himself in a gap, and use it to bridge them to the gospel. That's what he was doing. And you notice that Paul did not compromise the gospel at all. He did not shrink away from calling for repentance. He did not shrink away from declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't. These are the fundamental tenets of the gospel, and he never string away from it. Look at verse 30, verse 31 of Acts 17. In the past, he said, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. And he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. It's all about repentance and the resurrection. And this is where the line was drawn in the sand. Because up to this point, the Epicureans, the Stoics were listening, no problem. It was at this point when he started to share with them, you need to repent. You need to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That is where it separates you know, the believers from those who don't. And here's my point, brothers and sisters. We will do everything we can to reach people where they are but we cannot compromise the message of the gospel. This is where the line must be drawn. We must not and we cannot compromise the gospel. And as we communicate the gospel, we put ourselves in the gap between where the people are and where God is, and then we bridge them. See? And the good news here is this. No matter how wide the cultural and linguistic gap may be, Everyone can understand and respond to the language of love. Everybody do. You know, years ago, I was speaking in a church camp. I still remember the church camp. There's an old man in the, in the church camp who was a non-believer, but he was there. And I've noticed that through all the sessions I was preaching, he was sitting under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because by the end of the message, he would be in tears. He will be crying. But every time the altar call was given, every time the gospel was presented, he never responded. It was on the last day of the camp when I finally found out the reason why. Why, is your, why are you struggling with the conviction but yet not responding? And he told me the truth on the last day. I sat down with him and I asked him, and he told me this. He said the reason why is because his wife just died, or maybe a few months ago. And before the wife died, she wanted to go to church. She wanted to be a Christian, but he stopped her. He tore up her Bible, he refused to let her go to church and tell her don't believe and all of that. And now that the wife had died, she comes here, she gets the message. She says, I'm struggling because I just stopped my wife from this and how can I come and believe now? And then I end up in a different place. And as he was sharing, I knew, you know, that that was where he was going. And I was, well, so I, I was trying to act, you know, I was a speaker, right? So I got to act cool. Uh. So I was, oh, oh, oh. But inside, uh, I tell you, I was struggling. Uh, so I was praying, God, give me something wise to say. What can I say, you know? What can I say to a situation like that? And then when he finished telling his story, I opened my mouth and what came out was this. I said to him, I said, Uncle, do you think if your wife is here, how would he want you to respond? Don't you think she will love you so much? 
she would actually want you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I just said that. And then he started breaking down. He started weeping and wailing. And after he cried, I just, he, he literally wept his way into the kingdom of God. Shared him the gospel, we led him to Christ. Months later, he got baptized. Started serving in his church in Kuala Lumpur. And um, actually, before he, he died, you know, I was so grateful for what happened. What was I doing at that point? I can tell you this. I wasn't doing anything very smart. <laughs> but all that I was doing was standing in the gap and bringing this man to the Lord who loves him. This simple act of loving concern, but it was a powerful moment of communicating that gospel of love. And to communicate this glorious gospel, you must first feel the pressure upon your own soul. And then you are willing to stand in the gap to do what? Basically to do this last thing, present Jesus Christ as the ultimate answer. You present Jesus Christ as the ultimate answer. In Acts 17, 27, God did this, Paul said, so that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. To the Apostle Paul, Christianity is not a religious concept. It is God's revelation in Jesus Christ. And this is the fundamental difference between Christianity and any other religion. Religion is man searching for God, but Christianity is God searching for man. He's reaching out for us. And Paul knew that the answer is not what is the answer. The solution is in who is the answer. The ultimate answer to the world of Athens is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate answer to the world today is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why you and I must never be ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God and for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So I challenge you today, brothers and sisters, as faithful communicators of the gospel, we must first feel the pressure of the lostness of man upon our own soul. Then we must be willing to stand in the gap to do what? To present Jesus as the ultimate answer. Present to them Jesus Christ. Meekest and lowliest of men, yet so fierce that demons flee from him. Present to them this Jesus who is so gentle that children will come to him, but yet so firm that he drove the money changers out of the temple. The Jesus that is so kind he cared for the woman caught in adultery, yet so cutting that he would actually confront the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Present to them Jesus, the Holy One who saved the whole world, but he didn't save himself. The one who died, but praise God, rose again from the dead. Show them this Jesus. We present Jesus to them, and then they will have to choose. This unknown God wants to make himself known, and we are the ones that will make him known. Then the people will have to choose. And you know what? Acts 17, verse 32 and 34 ended this way. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. And some of the people then became followers of Paul and believed. Amongst them, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, over the women, then Damaris, 
and a number of others. So what's my point? My point is this. There will be some who will mock and sneer and laugh at us and ridicule us. But there will also be others who want to think about it and want to talk more. But there will be still some who will actually believe and become authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And this will make it all worthwhile. And we all say amen to that. Here's my burden for us this morning as we bring this to a close. Everything begins when we can really see the true state of mankind. We look at our friends. Sometimes I look at my friends. I look at my family members who are non, not yet believers. I look at them and on the surface, you know, they, are, they seem to be doing great physically, financially, socially, and even emotionally. They could be in a pink of health with big fat bank accounts and many of them cruising and traveling the world. They could be whining and dining. But I need to remind myself they are still lost spiritually. I need to never forget that they are still destined for a Christless eternity. And I need to be able to feel the pressure of their lostness upon my own soul. I must be willing, you know, to let that drive us to, to stand in the gap. Then we shout from the mountaintop, Jesus Christ is the only answer. Amen. That's why we do what we do this year, isn't it? We said that we're going to do these four things. Remember at the start of the year that we are going to pray faithfully for a few people that God would lay on our hearts. You still remember that? I still pray faithfully for my, the guy that I'm reaching out to. I just texted him last night. Can we meet again? <laughs> yeah. Because we need to do, number one, pray faithfully. Number two, connect relationally. Take time to, to spend with them. Meet them up. Have a, have a tea, have a coffee, have a meal with them. Build that relationship. Wait for that moment where felt needs will arise. Then we can show them love practically. Reach out. Really meet felt needs. And that will earn us the right to actually share boldly. And then the gospel, we present Jesus Christ as the ultimate answer. And we need to do that. Amen. And I want to challenge you. Don't stop that. Keep going. We are now in the middle of the year. We still got half a year more. Then during this half year, we can still continue to pray faithfully, connect relationally, show love practically, earn the right to share the gospel boldly. And then maybe by the end of the year, we can see a harvest of souls. And that nothing brings greater pleasure to the heart of God than to see lost people come to know Him. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet with me? And this evening, this, we're going to end this service with something very practical. I want to be able to pray for our prayer cards. And uh, the prayer cards are coming. And we're going to be praying together. Yeah. I want to take a moment right now, wherever we are, let's just bow our hearts for a few moments. And this box here, with all these prayer cards, these are the names of people that we all have been praying for throughout this year. 
I want to encourage us to continue to lift them up before the Lord. Every time we pray faithfully, then take time to connect with them relationally. And when those moments come where we could meet a felt need, let's reach out, show love practically. And when a moment of opportunity arises, that we will be bold enough to share the gospel boldly and let them know that Jesus Christ is the answer. Amen. So would you stretch your hands towards this cards that represents souls that we are reaching out to this year and allow me to pray. And then I want to send you away, you know, continuing to reach out, continuing to trust God to do something for all of our lost friends and our pre-believing friends that the Lord will reach them. Amen. Father, we bring ourselves before your presence this morning. We hear your word, but we also want to apply them. God, we thank you that you have demonstrated for us through the Apostle Paul what it means to feel the pressure of the lostness of man upon our own soul, to recognize that our, our loved ones and friends and colleagues, even though they may appear so good on the outside, they will be destined for Christless eternity unless they hear your gospel. And so I pray that, Lord, you help us to continue to pray faithfully for those that you lay on our hearts, that we will continue to connect with them relationally, take time to be with them. And God, I pray that the moments will come when the barriers will come down and the trust will go up and felt needs will begin to emerge. Give us wisdom to know how to reach out and to be able to meet those felt needs in practical ways. And then God, I pray that you open up opportunities for us to be able to share your wonderful, glorious gospel with them. Jesus Christ, the ultimate answer for the world. Lord, we just commit all these names and all these people into your hands. And we pray in Jesus' name that many of them will have an opportunity to hear your gospel being presented. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Would you bow your hearts with me as I pray for you and send us away. Father, I pray that you send us away this morning with a fresh resolve to be your channel, stand in the gap and present Jesus as ultimate answers. Send us away, taking your word that we have heard and not just say it's a good message or not a good message, but send us away, exploring your scriptures, applying them into our life. Send us away as evangelists for you. So now may the peace of God, the love of his son Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit go with us. Amen and amen. Amen. Praise be to God.